We now return to the real Ghostbusters. Oh, glorious, glorious, what's today? What's today, my fine fellow? Why, Christmas Day? Oh, it's not Christmas yet. Well, what's today? Eh, close enough. It's December, at least. So I haven't missed it. I need to stop hanging out with spirits. Spirits like... Crystal Head Vodka. You can lose track of time after a night with spirits. Yes, happy holidays, everyone. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Feliz Navidad. I'm Ross May, welcoming you to my log cabin where I record Reitman for the job. I know a few podcasters joke like that in December, pretending they've got a log cabin. But hey, you know I live in the middle of Canada and farther north than most people. For all you know, I might actually be in a log cabin. Hey, I do actually live within a short distance of bears and wolves, so that's pretty close. As you know, I had to really slow down on Reitman for the job in the second half of 2019. And we're not back with Ivan Reitman just yet, but today we're looking at the real Ghostbusters episode, Xmas Marks the Spot. Let's answer some listener questions. <laughs> Ooh, Jenny asks, Dear Santa, how are you? I would like a PJ Masks headquarters playset, please. What? This letter must have come by mistake. Good luck with all that, Jenny. Santos L. Halper asks, Ross, do you have any Ghostbusters-related holiday memories, and what's your favorite Ghostbusters toy? No, I don't have a specific Christmas Ghostbusters memory beyond wanting to see this cartoon every December. And, you know, Ghostbusters 2 is pretty good to see in December as well. I certainly don't remember getting real Ghostbusters toys at Christmas, though I'm sure it did happen for me. I don't collect much in the way of new Ghostbusters toys, not fancy or collectible ones anyway. So I do have a preference for the Kenner real Ghostbusters toys, and I let my kids play with them. I liked that Ecto-1 a lot, and the Kenner Marshmallow Man is still my favorite toy version of Mr. Stay Puffed. I like it how he's cute and not overly detailed. But my absolute favorite in the whole line is the Ghost Trap, the big one that pumps air to open the doors. I'm guessing most people love Proton Packs the most, but the Ghost Trap is my favorite piece of the equipment, which might be due to this toy. It doesn't have a light inside, but it glows in the dark. Oh man, I've always been a sucker for glow-in-the-dark things, and the Kenner Real Ghostbusters line was a great excuse to have ghosts and equipment that glowed. So yes, my favorite toy is the Kenner Ghost Trap. I like it so much I have my childhood one, and have picked up two more over the years in garage sales. Let me tell you, the days of picking up the old Kenner toys on the cheap was in the 90s and early 2000s, not anymore. Owning three Ghost Traps, I've also gotten good at repairing them. If you have one and it doesn't work anymore... The yellow hose and the little barb at the end of it has probably disconnected from the white cylinder chamber inside where the air goes. Some people buy a new barb. Seriously, a barb is that little ribbed piece at the end of the hose. If you can't find a new barb, there's also an easy fix by just widening the hole in the white cylinder. Shove in the yellow hose away, and if it keeps coming loose, just apply some glue around the outside, like crazy glue or something. You'll need to fix it again in like 20 or 30 years, but until then you're good to go. Yep, I really like ghost traps, so much that I do also own one of the fancy Maddie Collector traps. I'm sure a few of you hate me right now. Those are in very high demand. Thanks for listening to Toy Talk. What's that? I hear some bells ringing. Let's hear a holiday message from Dave and Andrew over at Filmstrips. Hey everyone, Andrew here. It's that time of year again when families gather together to celebrate various religious holidays with Quest Noble Devotion. It's a time to sing beloved songs and a time to engage in ritualized consumerist behavior. Pretty sick of it, aren't you? 
So why don't you let us here at Film Strips help you survive this holiday season? Each and every episode, Andrew and Dave, that would be me, take an in-depth look at a film, with the only rule being that the film under discussion must somehow connect back to the film which immediately preceded it via a cast or crew member. It could be a musical, it could be a horror film, it could be a film which triggers the psychological breakdown of the host. The only guarantees are spoilers and political commentary certain to infuriate your relatives at the dinner table. So let us into your homes and hearts to sow discord amongst you this holiday season. Well, I can't think of a better way to end 2019. Now return to the real Ghostbusters. Okay, let's spend three hours covering the entirety of the real Ghostbusters TV series. <laughs> or not. You're familiar with the cartoon. In fact, you probably know lots and lots of facts about it already. Hey, I can be like entertainment websites and go, Did you know the real Ghostbusters is called that because Filmation owned the trademark to use the name Ghostbusters on television? Yes, internet, every Ghostbusters fan knows this. Xmas Marks the Spot debuted on Saturday, December 13th, 1986. Yes, this is a genuine Saturday morning cartoon. Hey, here's a fact maybe some people are unaware of. Nobody is 100% sure on when every real Ghostbusters episode aired on ABC in North America. IMDB and Wikipedia will tell you dates for when people are pretty sure they aired, but nobody has kept track of all of them. I've seen online discussions of people arguing this day, not that day, looking at old TV guides to corroborate. I applaud your research if you've gone into that, but I'll tell you, even I, someone who researches and podcasts about this stuff, I can't spend all that time and energy trying to nail down exact airing dates. But I definitely salute you if you've tried to prove what date an episode aired. But hey, news for December of 1986. Oh, some New York news. On December 15th, Carnegie Hall is reopened after its first major renovation ever. People who knew the hall really well actually complained at first that something was ruining the acoustics a little bit, and after a few years they finally figured out what was up. They used some new concrete under the stage, and that was the problem. They'd removed the concrete in 95, and then everyone was happy again with the acoustics. By the way, no, Carnegie Hall isn't featured in the movie Ghostbusters. That scene with Sigourney Weaver at the fountain is at Lincoln Center. Oh wow, here's some amazing news from England on December 17th. At Papworth Hospital outside of Cambridge, 35-year-old Davina Thompson was dying, and a team of two surgeons and over a dozen more doctors and nurses performed the world's first triple organ transplant. It took them 12 hours to give her a healthy new heart, liver, and lungs. Mrs. Thompson lived for another 12 years, and died at the same hospital in 1998 at the age of 47. The surgery also gave her the chance to see her daughter grow up, so this is really amazing news to me. On December 19th, the movie Platoon, directed by Oliver Stone, premieres. A real feel-good movie for that Christmas. Oh hey, so the musical Les Miserables, which premiered years earlier in both Paris and London, now makes its American debut at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. This was basically just a dry run for when it moved to Broadway in 87, and it would run there until 2003. And finally, some sad news that hits close to home for me. On December 30th, there was a bus crash carrying the Swift Current Broncos, a Western Hockey League team. It wasn't a collision with another vehicle. The bus slid on ice, ran off the road, and was launched into the air. Four players sitting in the back of the bus died. This crash is well-remembered in Saskatchewan, especially in 2018, when there was another bus crash carrying a hockey team. 
Oddly enough, that team in 2018 was also named the Broncos from Humboldt. I've driven by both sites of these accidents. In fact, I drive by the Humboldt Broncos bus crash site several times a year. Before we dive into Xmas Marks the Spot, I want to briefly talk about what it's based on, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I know it, you know it. I don't want to dwell too much on it because then this episode would be on A Christmas Carol and not on this cartoon. But a few things. It was first published in December of 1843 and was popular right from the start. It also hit England and soon North America right when Christmas was on a rise in popularity. You might be kind of familiar with this, but Christmas didn't used to be the big Christian holiday. Easter is really supposed to be the most important holy day in Christendom. But here's some context. Queen Victoria had just married Prince Albert in 1840. Albert was from Saxony, so pre-German, where Christmas was a bigger thing and they celebrated with Christmas trees and St. Nicholas was a bigger deal, closer to the Santa Claus figure. It's a myth that Prince Albert entirely introduced these Christmas traditions to England, but after his marriage to Victoria, they did start having Christmas trees and big parties every year at Windsor Castle. So really, a Christmas fever started up in England, and that's the big reason Charles Dickens wrote this story. Think about it. England has a new German prince who throws grand Christmas parties with these spectacular trees lit up with candles. Now suddenly all of English high society is either attending the royal parties or hosting similar ones, and three years later Charles Dickens writes A Christmas Carol. What's funny is that this interest in celebrating Christmas might have fallen out of fashion, or decorating trees and focusing on Santa and having a big feast might have actually gone away, like pogs or beanie babies or something. But in English-speaking countries, it was the one-two punch of Twas the Night Before Christmas in America and A Christmas Carol in England that really helped the holiday cement itself. I mean, Christians were always going to observe Christmas, but I mean, do you spend hundreds of dollars on gifts for St. Patrick's Day? St. Patrick's Day is a thing, but it's not Christmas big. Society doesn't gear all of March around St. Patrick's Day. Okay, back to A Christmas Carol. One of the other novel things about it, which literary folks have all commented on, is that it doesn't even mention Jesus by name. Tiny Tim does make reference to Jesus, just in that Jesus healed the sick and lame. It's not really forgetting Jesus Christ or the Christmas story, but it's interesting that Dickens shift in focus away from religion itself to a more general idea of human welfare, of generosity, and even celebration really for the sake of it. So yeah, for good and ill, Dickens is probably the person most responsible for turning Christmas into a secular event. I've got nothing against that, and definitely nothing against sharing a celebration outside its original religion, but you know, you also get things like capitalism hijacking everything and making a connection between celebrating with your family and needing to spend money. Hmm, <clears throat> my politics are showing again. My final, final, final thing on A Christmas Carol, I swear. A lot of people today might say, well, isn't it interesting to have a ghost story set at Christmas? That's unusual. But the thing is, no, it is not. I was just talking about Christmas traditions coming to England and North America, but a tradition that's actually been lost is telling ghost stories at this time, particularly on Christmas Eve. Yes, throughout the 1800s, when the whole family's together and there's snow outside, someone would say, okay, tomorrow we celebrate the birth of Christ. Here, let me tell you a scary story. This one is really bloody. That used to be what families did. It just seems strange now. Frankly, that's an element that's even kinda forgotten in Twas the Night Before Christmas as well. Santa Claus comes in through the chimney the way people used to think fairies and evil spirits might. Santa is specifically called an elf. That's where the association with Santa and elves really begins. 
I mean, it's made clear that Santa has supernatural powers. Today we just think of Santa as a man who can probably do magic, but the poem is really about this elvish, magical man spirit that happens to entirely be good. It's steeped in the ideas of spirits from the 1800s, but today we don't really recognize that because now we just know who Santa is. And that's what's happening in A Christmas Carol as well. It's not unusual for the ghost of Jacob Marley to haunt Scrooge on Christmas Eve. In fact, that's kind of standard for the stories back in the day. It's the ghosts representing the spirits of Christmas in the past, present, and future. That's a unique idea. But even there, the visuals of a ghostly child or a grim reaper were familiar to Victorians. I've talked about the story's influence on popularizing Christmas, but honestly, as a work of narrative, it's these two ideas that are most remarkable about A Christmas Carol. What Dickens did was take the current popularity and fun of Christmas and marry it to the tradition of ghost stories at Christmas. All his readers at the time would have understood this, but today we're so unfamiliar with other Christmas ghost stories that A Christmas Carol seems like almost the only example, when really it was novel at the time because it makes the ghosts a positive force and sometimes fun. You can Google around for other Christmas ghost stories if you like. This is something I know about, but I'm not even actually an expert on this subject. Christmas Carol definitely became the most famous one. But I can share a few. Another good English story, but also a Canadian tradition. The Shepherd by Frederick Forsyth. It's about an RAF pilot who's lost in a fog, and then the plane's electrical systems fail. And I'm spoiling it, but something supernatural saves the pilot. Trust me, it's a good story. I think it might be more popular in Canada than the UK, actually. CBC Radio plays the story narrated by Alan Maitland every year. Google The Shepherd and CBC and you'll find it online. It's very good. A Christmas Carol is far and away the most popular Christmas ghost story, but a distant second is definitely Turn of the Screw by Henry James, written in 1898. It's good, but you need to get around more old-timey things. It can come across as moldy and old if you're not used to stories like it. But if you can get into the right headspace, I would recommend it. Turn of the Screw is famous for really popularizing the idea that it might be a ghost story, or someone might have been imagining ghosts the entire time, and which answer is scarier, that there are creepy ghosts haunting the living, or that a living person, a woman taking care of children, was insane and just doing horrible things the entire time. If you like the books or adaptations of The Shining or The Haunting of Hill House, you don't get those stories without Turn of the Screw first. It's very influential on horror. In fact, if you watched Netflix's Haunting of Hill House, its second season in 2020 is going to be a loose adaptation of Turn of the Screw. Xmas Marks the Spot debuted on ABC on Saturday morning, December 13th, 1986. It was written by the series story editor J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Richard Rainus. Real Ghostbusters fans tend to focus on Straczynski's involvement a lot, but I want to point out that Richard Rainus would work on Real and Extreme Ghostbusters, a bunch of other cartoons, but he was working on The Simpsons starting in 1992, and that's been his main work, being a producer for The Simpsons. So he's obviously talented. He's still over at Simpsons today. Hey, so we all know The Real Ghostbusters was produced by Deke. But you probably also know that means after designing characters and ghosts and things, and often storyboarding, the real heavy lifting of animating the cartoon was outsourced to Japan. So which animation studio handled production on this episode, or any episode of the first season? I believe I cracked this, everyone. The trick is to find the right person in the credits and follow their career. And the person I followed was animation supervisor Kazuo Tarada. Listed on his website, 
which I had to translate to English. Starting in 1982, he says he was an employee of KKCND. Man, that name does not tell you anything about it. Could be an accounting or law firm or something. But okay, I think the KK stands for its two Japanese founders, Katayama and Akagawa. I realize Akagawa doesn't begin with a K, but seriously, this is what the info leads me to conclude. C and D is for creative and development, but also a reference to Deke. Yeah, yeah, Deke didn't originally stand for development in creation or anything like that, but honestly, its founder, Jean Chalopin, casually made that switch. In fact, when he sold Deke proper, his next company was called Creative Development. He liked those words. Anyway, anyway, Chalopin, Deke's founder, co-founded a Japanese animation studio called KKCND. KK for the Japanese co-owners and animators, CND to represent it handled Japanese animation work for Deke. This all makes sense. Animation supervisor Kazuo Tarada oversaw Rainbow Bright, the real Ghostbusters, and then Dennis the Menace, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, and Zelda, all Deke cartoons. And just so you know his career, in the 90s, Tarada left for Disney Japan and would be in charge of overseeing the Aladdin Return of Jafar work done there and the Gargoyles TV series. So what company animated this episode and a lot of the real Ghostbusters? KKCND. Overall, Kazuo Tarada oversaw 34 episodes of the series, including all the Saturday morning episodes. So if you want to see what he did and what studio KKCND definitely did, search Kazuo Tarada on IMDb. Oh, and if you're a knowledgeable fan and want to jump in with, wait a second, this studio did some work, and this other studio, heck, didn't TMS work on the show? Okay, first off, definitely there were several different Japanese and Korean studios working on the series. There are some pretty lousy-looking episodes, too, that I'm guessing Deke hired because they were the cheapest companies, and it really shows. But, but, there's some online chatter where people mention TMS working on the real Ghostbusters, all without any proof, and I don't think that's actually true. Two reasons for this. First, TMS, Tokyo Movie Shinsha, is Japan's premier animation studio that does any contract work. If you're unfamiliar, they animated the better-looking episodes of DuckTales, Animaniacs, and Batman the Animated Series. TMS is the gold standard. So here's the thing about that. If you're going to ever pay TMS, you're going to have them work on your highest-profile episodes. KKCND animated the Saturday morning episodes and animated the primetime special, The Halloween Door, in 1989, and that's the best-looking episode of Real Ghostbusters. You can tell they spent more money animating that one because it was airing in the evening. KKCND did all of those. There's no way Deke would have paid TMS's premium prices and not put them on the highest-profile episode. This brings me to my second point about the TMS rumor. I do think I know why this started. KKCND was founded by former TMS employees, Katayama and Akagawa, the KK. That's the start of all this confusion. In fact, to dig into it even a little more, I know enough about Japanese animation studios back in the 70s to 90s that sometimes a person would be employed at a studio like TMS. But you know, animators work themselves to death, so they'd actually take contract work themselves at another studio and spend nights working on a different project for another company. So they're moonlighting at other places. I think that's the source of Western fans' confusion. The best episodes of Real Ghostbusters were always animated over at KKCND, but management and a lot of the staff were ex-TMS staffers. What's more, they were still friends with workers over at TMS, so they'd have those folks come in moonlighting. 
That's why episodes like this one, or better yet, The Halloween Door, look as good as they do. A lot of TMS people probably did work on them, but I don't think any episode of The Real Ghostbusters was actually contracted to TMS the company. Phew, that was a lot there. But I don't think any other Real Ghostbusters fan has ever laid that out before. I'll give myself a little wiggle room and say it's possible that TMS the company was subcontracted by KKCND to animate a few minutes within a good episode like this one, but I'm confident they never even animated a full episode themselves. So, now you know what's up with the animation side. Let's move on. I spoke earlier about how we're not entirely sure on all the real Ghostbusters premiere dates, but we are sure about Saturday mornings in 1986. Real Ghostbusters was unusual in that ABC commissioned 13 episodes, but at the same time Columbia Pictures also had Deke create 65 episodes for syndication. So in other words, the 65 episodes could be sold to any network. ABC would buy the syndication package anyway, which is how I saw all the series even in Canada, but I guess syndicated episodes could have been shown on other networks. Today, we typically call the 13 episodes that premiered on Saturday morning as Season 1, and I guess you could technically call them that, but production was actually happening all at the same time. Production-wise, the 13 Saturday episodes and the 65 syndicated episodes are almost equally Season 1. But there is a distinction there, and besides, the syndicated episodes were definitely airing a year later, in 87. And I've already let it slip, a lot of the syndicated episodes were done on the cheap and don't look this nice. So here's what's happening. The Real Ghostbusters premiered in September of 86 and aired almost every Saturday morning up to December 13th. In a way, Xmas Marks the Spot is kind of a season finale. You don't really notice it as much because more Ghostbusters adventures were on the way, but you know it's December, the place to end a show season if you're not going to end in the spring. There's also some stuff about returning ghosts and finally seeing inside the containment unit that I think is supposed to suggest this is like a finale to the Saturday morning episodes. Oh hey, I've been talking a lot about the episode's original airing in December of 86, but now I want to talk about its final airing. So I think I've mentioned this, I always wanted the real Ghostbusters to be on television. Even as an older kid, I was sad when it was mostly gone from ABC and I wasn't seeing the Halloween episodes anymore in October. But then I spotted this in December of 1994. Twas a week before the holiday. There are gifts under the tree. So mark the date. These tunes are ready to celebrate. Next Saturday morning here on ABC. ABC was advertising its Saturday morning lineup. December 24th was a Saturday that year, so it was a great time to heavily promote cartoons to kids. Right in there, I saw the real Ghostbusters and Janine clinking their glasses together. You know, I was kind of pumped and made a point of watching ABC that Saturday. Funny, I wasn't smart enough to think to record it that morning, but I think I was honestly a little bit in denial. I knew the series was over, but I guess I figured that it would always come back periodically. There was another ABC commercial that actually had the announcer mention the real Ghostbusters by name. I think he said something like, ringing in the new year, to the clip of them all toasting each other. I can't find that clip online. Again, I was still a kid under 10, and I wasn't really aware that shows would eventually leave television networks. But I figured this out. I'm quite confident that December 24th, 1994, was the last time the real Ghostbusters aired on ABC. After that, it would appear on other channels, like the Fox Family Channel, which I never got, in the late 90s. Now you can see it on some retro cartoon channels and periodically on streaming services, but in a way, I think of that December 24th, 1994 broadcast on ABC as the end of The Real Ghostbusters. 
It was certainly the end on the channel that had been its home since it began. So Xmas marks the spot in a way is a season finale, but also the last one shown on ABC. See, this is the stuff I care about while the rest of the world was waiting on the murder trial of O.J. Simpson to begin in January of 95. Yep, I was a kid. But also, I think this is still a healthier subject to obsess over. Let's get into the episode. We all love that opening, of course. I wish the episodes themselves were animated as well as the opening with the theme song. Oh, we haven't quite left the final 94 airing on Christmas Eve. See, I always wondered if I imagined this, but I have proof. Proof, I tell you. When I watched it in 94, I distinctly remember that the title card to the episode was framed by a rectangle wreath. That surprised me as a kid, because I had never seen that before. But then, of course, you never see that on DVDs or anything. Aha, but thank you to the YouTube channel of John Seitz. He has a VHS recording uploaded to YouTube that proves I'm not crazy. Google RGB Christmas Special Opening Credits 1994. See, I had never spotted this YouTube video for so long because he tagged it as RGB and not Real Ghostbusters. Anyway, it's just a VHS recording of the opening, and the Real Ghostbusters title is framed with Christmas lights. That's fun, and something someone over at ABC added in just for that 94 airing. I'm assuming they did that to a lot of the cartoons that morning. I like that. Someone at ABC putting in a little extra effort to old cartoons, maybe even the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show, just to make it festive for kids. That Saturday morning, just because it was Christmas Eve, was treated as a little TV event for the children watching. I love it. Yes, repeating myself, in its final 1994 airing, ABC overlaid Christmas lights on the real Ghostbusters title and a rectangle wreath over Xmas marks the spot. That's fun, and again, maybe this was just me, but something a little special to say goodbye to the cartoon on network TV. Okay, we're finally actually in the cartoon. The Ghostbusters had a job in upstate New York, and they're lost on back roads trying to get home. J. Michael Straczynski shows that he really knows how to write these characters well. Right off the bat, there's good banter about how Ray singed the fur off their customer's cat. I mean, realistically, I think we'd all assume that any living thing getting near to a proton stream would get blasted to pieces. But then this is a cartoon, so who cares about that kind of thinking if you can get a good joke in there instead? Oh, speaking of Straczynski again, on the Time Life DVD set that I got to contribute to a little bit, mm-hmm, Anyway, on an intro to this episode, he says that this is his favorite episode of the series. I can dig it. I think a lot of fans think of the Boogeyman as one of the best ideas the show ever did, or perhaps some of the Halloween episodes, but this is also one of the most clever ideas, that the Ghostbusters are going to trap the spirits from a Christmas carol. Hey, check out Winston and Peter in the back seat. For one thing, they're not wearing seatbelts. Talk about setting a bad example to kids. Also, the cartoon usually depicts Ecto-1 having a bench seat in the back but here they have two bucket seats. And if you really know the Ectomobile, you'll also know that the real car has two bucket seats facing each other, but here you can have all the characters facing forward to talk to each other. Aren't you glad I'm here to point out all these important facts? Oh, there's a bit of possible diegetic music in the car. Again, if you're a real Ghostbusters fan, you probably know this. In early episodes, they had the pop duo called Tahiti perform music and there's actually a real Ghostbusters soundtrack that features 10 songs. The duo were these kids, or teens, I can't really nail down their ages, but the young duo of Tyron Perry and Tanya Townsend. Even if it wasn't a super successful idea, it was a cute one, and the songs, you know, they're not horrible. They're at least gem in the holograms quality level, and that was a cartoon all about music. Anyway, the song here is Party On His Mind, 
several of the songs were designed specifically for certain episodes, and this one is really built for Troll Bridge, the one with the party troll. Now it's just slotted into the start of this episode, and I think we're supposed to assume it's playing on the radio. Ecto-1 quits. At first I always assume it's because they run out of gas, but it'll start up again later. Huh. Don't know what's wrong with it. Plot contrivance, frankly. The guys go out hiking. I love it that they take their heavy proton packs with them. They seem to take, or not take, the packs as needed for any story. You know what I mean? Like, they might be on vacation so another story might be based around them fighting ghosts without their equipment? But here, part of the story is they need to bust three ghosts, so they conveniently decided to take the packs with them, even though they're freaking heavy. And here's an important bit, and probably one of the biggest sticking points of real Ghostbusters lore, Peter Venkman's childhood. Let's listen to Ray and the guys. What a way to spend Christmas Eve, eh, Peter? Typical. Come on, let's see if we can find a phone somewhere. What's with him? He always gets grumpy about this time of year. Christmas isn't Peter's favorite season. His father was always away at Christmas. That affects you after a while. It's easier to shrug that off if you pretend you don't care about Christmas. And you pretend it long enough, pretty soon you believe it. So we've got that depressing piece of info, but let's back up. The first bit of expanded Ghostbusters lore is really the North American novelization to the film, written by Richard Mueller. In it, each Ghostbuster gets a small section that details more of their family life than what's in the movie. For Peter, we learn that he grew up as a carny, which, by the way, a lot of fans take note of, but nobody ever really pays enough attention to Mueller's idea that Venkman starts out as a huckster and a fraud, and while he's always a huckster, he just happens to transition into something that's real. It's ghosts, but it's real. Anyway, Richard Mueller came up with this transitory childhood for Peter, as well as this huckster, con-man background at a carnival. Peter and his dad have a nice farewell, too, with Peter wanting to go to college even though he's unsure of what he'll become. And his dad seems to have faith in him, but he dies before Peter became successful as a Ghostbuster. It's still true to this Peter character, but it's kind of sweet, filled with pathos. It's a great touch for Mueller. Straczynski was familiar with the novel when he hired Richard Mueller to write for the cartoon series, and the two of them kind of made a new canon backstory for Peter. Mueller ended up liking the idea of Peter's dad so much that the dad was now alive in the cartoon, actually. He wrote three episodes that feature Venkman Sr., who's a con man. On the flip side, there's Mrs. Venkman. So in the voice clip I just played, She's Not Mentioned, Straczynski wrote one other episode touching on Peter's past, called The Thing in Mrs. Faversham's Attic. In it, it's made clear Peter is being nice to an elderly lady because she reminds him of his mom. And towards the end, he even says his mom was alone a lot, and he never got to... and he trails off. So, I mean, she's dead. And wow, again, talk about pathos. Peter had this sad kind of childhood, with his dad running off trying to earn money, and Peter has regrets about his mom. I never want to overplay this and say the real Ghostbusters is the most important animated series or anything, but, you know... You look at other cartoon shows up into the mid-80s, and I can't think of another that did anything approaching that level of maturity. 
and the fact that the series never explicitly says the words, Peter's mom is dead, is a good indicator that American animated shows weren't really prepared or allowed for this level of maturity. So yes, the key episodes to understanding Peter's childhood are Xmas Marks the Spot, The Thing in Mrs. Faversham's Attic, and the three episodes featuring Peter's dad. And there are two other episodes that seem to contradict all this. Ghostbuster of the Year has a joke where Winston tells Peter to call his mother, and Peter doesn't correct him. That's a borderline case, but in The Devil in the Deep, Peter has a line about his mom reading Celebrity Magazine, and is definitely present tense. Some fans try to square these things away, and you really can't. Both episodes weren't written by Straczynski or Mueller, and it's a detail that just slipped by. Straczynski was still the editor at the time, so yeah, maybe he should have caught that. Or maybe he thought they were just good jokes. Or what I probably believe, oh my god, I've got overseas 78 episodes and ah, I need to keep moving, keep moving fast, keep writing. But yes, Peter Venkman, sad childhood, deadbeat dad, dead mom, let's move on. The guys walk through a blizzard and get sent back in time. Maybe Egon would have noticed this anomaly if he had his PKE meter out. By the way, I love it that there's no explanation for why this wormhole to the past, and to London, exists. And you might say, hey, it's an example of real Ghostbusters being a kid's show, it's not as sophisticated as the movie. And yeah, it's not, but also consider Groundhog Day. Is there any reason why Phil Connors gets stuck in a time loop in the movie Groundhog Day? Eh? Didn't consider that similarity, did you? Groundhog Day even has a blizzard keeping the Bill Murray character stuck there too. And honestly, both here and in Groundhog Day, the time travel anomaly is just a device to teach the Bill Murray character a lesson. That's frankly why the wormhole exists. Huh. Maybe this lends credence to my theory that all Bill Murray roles are supposed to be related. I love it how the Ghostbusters aren't smart enough to figure out that they're back in Victorian London. They call it a town, but if you saw 1840s London stretched out in front of you, you'd know it's not a town. It's a city. We see Bob Cratchit and his son Tiny Tim buying a bird for Christmas, and it's comically small. This scene isn't in Dickens' story, by the way, but it's Straczynski finding a clever way to at least include the characters, because otherwise they're not in any of the scenes with the ghosts. When Scrooge does see the Cratchit's meal, when he's hanging out with the Ghost of Christmas present, the goose is mentioned being particularly small, but fitting in a hand here is extra funny. Oh hey, I've just spotted a mistake by Straczynski. In the story, the Cratchits eat a goose, while here, they say it's a duck. I'm goofing, and this fact doesn't really matter. Again, we're moving on. Speaking of all these names, now's a good time to point out that Charles Dickens made a point of giving characters comically appropriate sounding names, usually based on how they sounded. I mean, it's Bob and Tiny Tim Cratchit, and Tiny Tim goes around on a crutch. Cratchit isn't a real surname, if you ever wondered. And take the star, Ebenezer Scrooge. It's not just a particular name we associate with that character today. Even back in 1843, it sounded like a ridiculous, mean name. Scrooge is probably a corruption of Scrooge or Screws, which means to squeeze or to press. So his name literally means Penny Pincher. Scrooge just isn't a real name people have. The ghost of Jacob Marley, dead as a doornail, flies up out of Scrooge's home, and it's a great bit of animation, probably the best in the whole episode, so it's almost too bad he flies by so fast. You can tell that's Maurice LaMarche providing his moaning. Heh, <laughs> I've gotten so used to hearing LaMarche in cartoons, I can even identify just general sounds he makes now. The three spirits of Christmas zoom into Scrooge's bedroom, and the Ghostbusters charge in uninvited. Huh, 
I guess Scrooge didn't lock his door. And come to think of it, in the story, the ghosts come in hourly intervals, but here they're all showing up together. Again, it doesn't matter. It's all fine. I will not go with you. Get away from me, spirits. Leave me be. Don't just stand there, man. Do something. You think nobody's ever heard of the word please? Young says no. You do him far more disservice than us. Release us, or you and all Christmases to come will pay the price. Yeah, yeah, we've heard it before. No, no! You, you've done it! I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. <laughs> and we're the Ghostbusters. Well, now that we've introduced ourselves, uh, can we use your phone? I'm sorry, I haven't got a phone, did you say? Uh, but, oh, gentlemen, you have my eternal, unwavering gratitude. What you've done here tonight will cost you some pretty big bucks if you'd like to write out a check. The Ghostbusters trap the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Let's talk about some voice actors. That's the real Egon himself, Maurice LaMarche, doing the voice of the ghost of Christmas present. Mona Marshall is the voice of Christmas past. I believe this was her only time on Real Ghostbusters, but boy, she is prolific at voice acting. By 1986, she had already done some Scooby-Doo work along with Frank Welker playing Fred. Frank Welker being Ray and Slimer here, of course. Mona Marshall is in G.I. Joe and Transformers, some of the more minor Smurfs. She's a lot of the women on South Park today, and, whoa, she's the current official English voice of Doraemon. That would be a huge deal if Doraemon was just more popular here. Doraemon is Mickey Mouse level famous everywhere around the world, just except for English language audiences. My kids watch Doraemon in Cantonese, and it's a big deal anytime one of Doraemon's voice actors change. It makes the news in some places like Japan and Taiwan. There are official voices to Doraemon the way that there are official Disney voices to characters. Back to Mona Marshall. I like this. For years and years, she's been brought back again and again for Digimon as Izzy and Gargamon. I don't watch Digimon, but you know, I respect that series for sticking to its mythology and its hardcore fans, including always bringing back the English voice actors. Voice actors who dub anime are usually seen as pretty disposable. For comparison, the more popular Pokemon canned its original American actors years ago. But I've noticed Digimon makes a point of keeping the same voice actors, including Mona Marshall and Laura Summer, our Janine for this episode. So yeah, Mona Marshall and Laura Summer work together to this day on new Digimon projects. And our main guest star, Ebenezer Scrooge, is played by Peter Renaday. Oh man, speaking of official Disney voices, after Walt Disney's death, Renaday was briefly Mickey Mouse on record albums and talking toys. Peter Renaday is an American actor, but one of his specialities is putting on a great faux English accent. He's played Sherlock Holmes on stage. 
But yeah, for cartoons, he's been some Transformers. At this point, which voice actor hasn't been a Transformer? He was in DuckTales and Gem, Gargoyles, Samurai Jack. Frankly, hundreds of things, usually not as main characters. But we will always know Peter Renaday as... My four young wards nicknamed me Splinter for obvious reasons. I, in turn, named them after my favorite Renaissance painters. I knew the outside world would consider them freaks, so I trained them in the art of ninjutsu. Donatello, whose simple wooden bull can disarm any adversary. Raphael, no sword on earth can withstand his side. Leonardo, his swordsmanship is unmatched. Michelangelo, master of the whirling nunchakus. And master of the whirling pizzas. And that is how they became the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Come on, of course I know Peter Renaday is Splinter. In fact, I have an autograph from him. I know, not exactly the coolest having him whisper out wise words to simulate a Japanese accent? Sorta? Not really? Eh, Ninja Turtles cartoons have been better lately about hiring Asian actors to play Splinter. But yes, here in Real Ghostbusters, you can really hear Renaday do his specialty of doing a pretty good English accent. Oh yeah, and before we met Scrooge, that was also Renaday voicing the butcher who sold the tiny bird. IMDB and websites don't even list him voicing that, but I've got enough of an ear that I can tell. Back to the Dickens story, Straczynski has Scrooge say some lines here from the novel. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. If you know the story, it's a fun subversion because those are the lines Scrooge says after he's become a generous, loving person. Here, the Ghostbusters have mucked up the story, but Scrooge is still happy even though he's going to continue being a miser. Then, Scrooge launches into his lines about Jacob Marley, that it was really what he ate that made him hallucinate. There's more gravy than of grave to those ghosts. Ha, let me tell you, as a writer, we're told to kill our darlings, but that line was definitely one of Charles Dickens' darlings. You can tell that he had that pun and was just dying to write it down. Scrooge refuses to pay at first, and Ray threatens to release the ghosts again, just like what the guys threatened to do with Slimer in the movie. I always like that joke, and come to think of it, I think this might be the only time in the entire cartoon series the characters threaten to do it again, at least in the context of a customer not paying. You tend to stop and take note any time the cartoon does a direct callback to something in the movies. Scrooge tosses a single coin at Ray. Peter starts objecting. I love it. Ray nudges Peter to stop and Peter asks if this is his primitive way of wanting to communicate. The dialogue here is always so fun. But Ray shows what the coin is from 1837. There's Victoria on one side and a crown on the other, so while the crown's not very accurate, it's supposed to be some value of pence, so less than a pound, even less than a shilling. Ray is impressed and thinks this old coin in mint condition should cover their fee. Hey, so let's try to figure out its value. Let's say it's a sixpence, half a shilling. Rather than using a value converter, let's check coin websites on ebay.co.uk. <laughs> tap, 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 tap. I'm seeing some people selling banged up ones for as little as 20 pounds today. Average ones for around 100 to 150 pounds. <laughs> a really nice one for 850 pounds. <laughs> and someone's trying to sell another really gross one for 2,000 pounds. Good luck with that. So, are the Ghostbusters actually getting a good deal here? Uh, it's iffy. The main thing is the coin is in perfect condition. 
If they sold it to a coin store in 1986 or 87, they'll probably get the equivalent closer to 1,000 pounds or 1,300 US dollars. Let's be really generous to them and bump it all the way up to 2,000 American. That sounds okay, but consider that in the movie they charged $5,000 just for one ghost. You kind of assume, even at a bulk discount, three ghosts cost more than just the one. My point is the Ghostbusters aren't actually getting a good deal out of this. In fact, they're still giving Scrooge a deal compared to their normal rates, but I guess Peter and Ray just consider this as a bonus since they really stumbled upon the haunting. And besides, the most important, important thing... This makes for a decent joke, that something as worthless as sixpence to Scrooge could potentially be worth hundreds, maybe even a thousand dollars to the Ghostbusters from the future. Hey, speaking of which, by the end of this story the Ghostbusters still have this coin. I only point that out because in a lot of time travel stories, physical objects need to go back to their own times. But here, the Ghostbusters honestly get to keep a coin that jumped with them through time. The Ghostbusters immediately go back to the car. I thought they were looking for a phone. Oh well. Ray just tries again, and it starts. That's weird. This really is the universe just conspiring to teach Peter Venkman a lesson about the holidays. And hey, let me tell you, as a Canadian, cars do not suddenly become more likely to start in cold weather. If anything, Ecto-1 should be dead. I guess that's why this is a cartoon. So back to New York we go. Egon meets Janine and Slimer, who bah humbug Christmas. Hmm. Egon has a feeling. I wonder if he'll figure things out in time. The other guys go to Fifth Avenue, which is famous in December for its Christmas decorations. I mean, you can walk by the Empire State Building, and from there you're only a couple blocks from Macy's, so that's the Miracle on 34th Street setting. Oh, and on Fifth itself, they could also walk by the New York Public Library. Go wish a Merry Christmas to the lions out front and the librarian ghost that they never bothered to catch inside. By the way, the Ghostbusters Firehouse, I mean Hook and Ladder Number 8 in Tribeca, is further south from all of this. It would have taken the guys 15 or 20 minutes to either drive up there or go by subway, or they could get there on foot in around an hour. Aren't you glad I'm here giving you all these important details? So Ray wanted to go check out the decorations on 5th Avenue, but there are none. Instead, people are selling Scrooge's best-selling book, A Christmas Humbug. For some reason, now Ray figures out that they've traveled back in time, and Winston is the one who actually says that he's familiar with the Christmas Carol story. <laughs> these guys were so dumb about all this, here I thought maybe all four of them had never heard the story. That gets to the one thing about this episode. As fun as an idea as it is for them to trap the Christmas ghosts, the Ghostbusters need to be really stupid for this story to work. Ah well. I like this bit. A woman on the street tells the guys that in 1837, Scrooge defeated the ghosts, quote, all by himself, and Christmas has been gone since then. I love it that Scrooge had to take that extra step and lie to the world about how he defeated the ghosts. And real quick, this brought me to an interesting question. Why is the past set in 1837 when A Christmas Carol was published in December of 1843? I know the coin we talked about is minted 1837, but it's only this lady here who confirms the past is set that year. I had a hunch, and I tweeted J. Michael Straczynski about it. I asked him, is this to suggest, in my overthinking mind, that perhaps Christmas Carol was always a true event in 1837 that Dickens learned about and wrote? Straczynski got back to me real quick and wrote, Yes, since in the GB's world, obviously Scrooge did exist since they were able to get to him. So there we go, in real Ghostbusters, the idea is that Ebenezer Scrooge was a real person, this was a real story, and when he was turned into a merry fellow, he probably told his story to Charles Dickens himself. 
Or if not that, Scrooge at least told other people and the story got around London. And that's all great, but what I really love is that Straczynski's script never explains any of that to a kid. But if you happen to know the story was published in 1843, you can figure this out why he said it a few years prior to the book. Oh, back to the lady on the street. It's interesting that they got another actress, Marilyn Lightstone, to perform instead of have Mona Marshall or Laura Summer do a different voice. Marilyn Lightstone is a Canadian actress and first worked for Joe Medjuk and Michael Gross as an evil queen on Heavy Metal, so I'll be mentioning her again next year. Actually, while she only returns to real Ghostbusters two more times, she probably plays the two most significant women's roles who aren't Janine. She plays Ray's Aunt Lois, and she plays Mrs. Faversham in that episode I mentioned about Peter and his mom. I mean, it's two one-offs, but it's a relative of Ray, and it's a woman who really brings out Peter's feelings about his mother. But I'm overlooking Marilyn Lightstone. Deke had her come back to do voices on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. And hey, on Dennis the Menace, she's Mrs. Wilson. You know, Mrs. Wilson opposite Phil Hartman. Yeah, if you didn't know, Phil Hartman voiced Mr. Wilson on most of the Dennis the Menace Deke cartoon show. Just at the end, Maurice LaMarche had to finish off the last few episodes. Hey, Canadian content. Marilyn Lightstone is in all of those Anne of Green Gables and Road to Avonlea shows. You know I love mentioning them when it comes to Canadian actors. And... Marilyn Lightstone both acted and even wrote an episode of The Littlest Hobo. Ahem. <clears throat> anyway, the guys race back to the firehouse, but they're too late. Egon put the ghosts into the containment unit. Hey, watch the scene transition for when they go upstairs. There's this neat checkerboard effect that I don't think they use in other episodes. But also, also, there's this sound effect. It's the same general sound effect you hear at the opening of Deke's Adventures of Super Mario Bros. 3 cartoon. Egon, no, wait! Those three ghosts, Egon, are they... Of course, I just finished now. It is a legend no one will forget. Everyone thought King Koopa had left the Mushroom Kingdom. What can I say? I'm watching this stuff so closely, I notice these things now. The effect was obviously made by the same sound engineer over at Deke. In fact, I can even narrow it down to two names. The sounds were probably either done by Michael J. Cowan or Joel Valentine. I find this interesting. There's a viewer into the containment unit. The unit's in the basement, but this viewer isn't there or even on the main floor, but upstairs in the lab. Huh. Does that mean that, like, Egon and Ray wired up a video cable, maybe a coaxial or a composite video, up two floors? That seems inconvenient when you're working with a containment unit. The series would be inconsistent on what technology the containment unit has and where. In another episode, there was basically a glass window right on the unit itself. This all brings up an interesting point. In the final script to the 84 movie, there was going to be a scene where Peter actually looks through a viewer sort of like this, and we see the ghosts trapped inside the containment unit. This would have required a lot of effects work for something that wasn't really necessary, so it was cut. But coming up here on all the containment unit stuff, this is basically the cartoon fulfilling on that idea from the film. I'm sure executive producers Michael Gross and Joe Medjuk could have told Straczynski about that cutscene. And here, the cartoon is about to play around with the idea of finally seeing what's inside the containment unit. I think that's neat. Come to think of it, not just from the movie, but getting to see inside the containment unit is also fulfilling an ongoing trend in the cartoon up until this point. A lot of the Saturday morning episodes up to December had been based around the threat of repeating the disaster scene in the movie. 
the very first episode, Ghosts Are Us, had Slimer accidentally release three ghosts. Killer Watt prominently featured the threat of the containment unit releasing every ghost. In Mrs. Rogers' Neighborhood, that was also the demon Watt's big plan. Citizen Ghost had energy leaking from the containment unit. If you include this episode, five of the 13 original Saturday morning cartoons features plots with the unit. Let's cut to outside the firehouse, because that's what the cartoon does. Two men and their dogs are just humbugging at each other. So the absence of Christmas itself has made New Yorkers mean. And you know, I kind of get it. Where I live, winter is dark and very, very cold, so you really need a holiday to look forward to. After Christmas, then, it's probably Chinese New Year over at my house, but then it's just waiting impatiently for spring. Come on, spring, come on. But my point, my point. The idea that something is causing everyone to be extra miserable, this almost looks a bit like what's going on in Ghostbusters 2 a few years later. You know, it's the holidays, New Yorkers think they can get by without being courteous to one another. Huh, just a similar trend that I noticed. But even more to the point, nobody's heard of Hanukkah? And this is New York here. People are going to know Hanukkah. I would kind of like this story to take a left turn and for the guys to go, Oh no, we ruined Christmas! And then Egon pipes up with, Well, there's still Hanukkah. Come on, my mom taught me how to make latkes and brisket. By the way, I even looked it up. In 1986, Hanukkah ran from December 26th to January 3rd, so they still have time to celebrate. Heck, Winston could go, You know, I guess I could celebrate Kwanzaa more. I could even teach you guys what I know about it. Just have Peter not learn the meaning of Christmas, because instead he gets into Hanukkah and Kwanzaa. Man, I kind of like this alternate story I'm making. But I guess we need to go save Christmas. As he so often does, Egon has a plan. He can enter the containment unit and rescue the Christmas ghosts, assuming he can find them in an hour. In case that doesn't work, the other guys should go back to the past and try impersonating the ghosts in case Egon's mission fails. Here's a clip I like. This is going to be very difficult, Janine. I... I'll need your help. All right, Egon. Just as long as you know I'm doing it for you, and not this c c c Christmas. Bah humbug! Christmas. Humbug! Fascinating. I think that's cute. Janine even gets little hearts in her eyes. Also, the fascinating joke at the end. Of course, that's a reference to Mr. Spock and how he always says fascinating on Star Trek. Harold Ramis used to point out that his character Egon was, quote, a new wave Mr. Spock, end quote. I can't find it right now, but I think some reviewers at the time also picked up on this fact and sort of knew he was a very Spock type of character. A lot of real Ghostbusters writer knew this connection too. There's an episode called Ain't Necessarily So, where part of the joke is that the Ghostbusters basically meet the original Enterprise crew, only there's no Spock because Egon already fills that role. Anyway, just a little joke that I like everyone who really knows the Ghostbusters in Star Trek are all in on. Egon puts on basically an astronaut suit. Now here's something interesting. This right here inspired the Super Fright Features toys, the Kenner figures where they're in astronaut or submarine suits. In fact, you can tell the toy designer was looking at this episode, even if they didn't follow the design or coloring completely. In the cartoon, Egon is mostly in red, while his toy is mostly white. But they gave the toy the same knee pads and straps, and he's even got the piping around his chest and shoulders. For all the other figures, they made great different suits, but even as a little five-year-old, I could tell that these toys were supposed to represent what was happening in this episode, so I find that very neat. This suit is amazing, and can destabilize Egon's molecules, 
or make him kind of ghostly. That, plus a laser device pointed at the containment unit, lets him dive in. Janine runs upstairs to view Egon's progress, not noticing that Slimer nearly gets sucked in and the laser device is starting to spark and malfunction. So this is the real reason the viewer is way upstairs. It's so Janine can be out of the basement while things go haywire. Egon dives into the containment unit, and if you don't know, all the lights and effects are parodying 2001, A Space Odyssey. Also from the viewer, Janine sees what's supposed to be a computer effect of a trench. I'm pretty sure this, immediately following the 2001 reference, is doing a joke that it looks like the Death Star plans from Star Wars. Speaking of which, sidebar here, the Death Star plans in Star Wars were created by Dan O'Bannon, who also worked on Heavy Metal, so we'll be talking about him next year. I should mention, this is the only time a human will go into the ecto-containment unit on real Ghostbusters. Slimer would be sent in, I believe, four other times on the series. Maybe the Ghostbusters learned they could trust Slimer with this job. There's also one other time in the Extreme Ghostbusters cartoon, but I want to save that bit until the end here. Back in 1837, Peter is pretending to be the ghost of Christmas past, complete with flares to make it look like he has an aura. He also knocked off Scrooge's spectacles by accident, which helps a bit with his disguise. This is all the most farcical stuff of the cartoon, where each of the three Ghostbusters need to impersonate the spirits. Peter has what's basically a Viewmaster with a little wheel of images, and he shows things to Scrooge. Now even as a kid, I found this a problem. How did the Ghostbusters get images of Scrooge's boyhood school? Again, this is the stuff where the jokes take precedent over the logic. This is the weakest stuff of the episode also, but eh, it's okay. Also, all the real Ghostbusters writers said that the Ghostbusters were so strong, the show didn't actually need to be about fighting ghosts, and scenes like this kind of demonstrate that. I think to the general public, at first blush, Ghostbusters is about the hit song and zapping ghosts. And Ghostbusters is kind of that, but most of the time it's actually about people saying humorous things to each other while facing the supernatural. These scenes of the guys dressing up is a good reminder of that. This is also the point where you see why Peter was made the ghost of Christmas past. Ebenezer mentions his father was never around at Christmas, and all the other kids went home at Christmas too, so Peter comes to the realization that that's not enough for a kid, that you need to have other people in your life at times like the holidays. They don't linger on this idea for too long, which I think is appropriate for the Venkman character. He also mentions that even if you had a lousy childhood, you should try your best to get past that and to enjoy things in the present. Speaking of, Winston gets to dress up as the ghost of Christmas present and just swings Ebenezer around outside like he's Spider-Man. He's doing the most dangerous work. He's not really getting close to people's homes like in the book. They don't visit the Cratchit's place or anything. Back in 1986. So weird to say that with time travel involved. Anyway, at the firehouse, Egon passes through a mechanical tube thing. I don't think we see many more mechanical things in the containment unit in the future, so I wonder if that's kind of the gateway. You know, where a ghost would pop out whenever a trap is unloaded into the unit. We also hear that deke sound effect again. And we see our first shot of inside the containment unit. It's spooky and there are floating rocks. Again, I just want to point this out. If you grew up watching the cartoon, you take it for granted that this is what the inside of the containment unit looks like. But really, from the movie on, we all had no idea. So try to see it in that context. That this is a big reveal that maybe you were wondering about since 84. It's interesting that there's little gravity in here, even for Egon. I always wondered as a kid, what are the limits to the unit? There's obviously a gateway somewhere, but everything else seems like an endless void. Are there walls inside the place, or does it just go on forever? So did, like, Egon and Ray basically create a pocket dimension inside a mechanical box? 
today as an adult, I recognize more that we're just supposed to accept the containment unit as it is. But even as a wee little kid, I was really curious on whether this dimension had limits and whether it could be filled to capacity or it just had unlimited capacity for ghosts. We just don't know. To the story. And here's an extra fun thing. So this story is already kind of special because we're inside the containment unit now, but it really emphasizes this is like a season finale when we meet almost all the ghosts the guys had trapped so far. I'm not going to point them out frame by frame because it happens too fast. What I would recommend is after watching the episode, go back to this section and frequently pause here and you'll spot cameos from just about every spook that should be in here. In several shots, there's the three ghosts from the first episode, Ghosts Are Us. Sam Hain, the pumpkin head, flies by several times. He's from when Halloween was forever. The poltergeist, the big ghost that could absorb smaller ghosts from Slimer Come Home, is there. There are two group shots, one where everything rushes Egon, and another where they all zoom after him as he flies away. You can see the monstrous Watt from Mrs. Rogers' Neighborhood. There's the Sandman. The ghost that wanted quiet in Take 2 is there, which is also kind of mean because if that ghost would remember, Egon tried to help it find a quiet place. In the final chase group shot, you can see a lot of these things again, plus the winged puma and mansion ghosts from Look Homeward Ray and Killerwatt, the electric ghost. Doing the math, doing the math, that's about all of them. Straczynski and the animators were really keeping track, because this is almost all the spooks the Ghostbusters had encountered up to this point. The only things not featured are the trolls from Troll Bridge, the Boogeyman, and the spirits from Janine's Genie, and that all makes sense because the Ghostbusters didn't trap any of those. So the real omission left, the only ghosts not featured that actually were trapped, are the Ghostbusters doppelgangers from Citizen Ghost. You know, the green spectral Ghostbusters in their old gray uniforms? I mean, I know the real reason. It's because if you suddenly saw what looked like evil spirits of the Ghostbusters for a split second, that could be pretty confusing if you missed that episode. Come to think of it, I wonder if the doppelganger stayed as ghosts of the guys, or if they reverted into more just blobs of ectoplasm. Oh geez, what if the doppelgangers really think they're the Ghostbusters, and they're just like, condemned to the containment unit, when really their personalities are just as valid as the human Ghostbusters? There's a horrifying thought. No, 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 no. They're formless, mindless blobs now. I'm calling it. There's one more notable absence. No sign of the Marshmallow Man. Come to think of it, that's something to point out about this season. So, setting the opening song aside, these original 13 episodes are treating the Marshmallow Man as having been destroyed from the movie. I know, I know, the song shows them trapping it, but I think we're supposed to treat that as being kind of representational, and not something that actually happened. The Marshmallow Man also appears, I'm using air quotes around appears, in the Sandman episode. Mr. Stay Puft forms out of a dream, but disappears when people wake up. So it's not really the same thing there as the Gozer manifestation. Anyway, I'm just pointing out, these original Saturday morning episodes do stick closer to the idea from the movie that the Marshmallow Man was Gozer, and was destroyed. But with there being a Kenner toy, one of my favorites, and Mr. Stay Puff being in that opening, I think they all decided to loosen up on that idea for future episodes, and the Marshmallow Man is suddenly a friendly spirit that lives most of the time in the containment unit. But anyways, here, we still don't have a friendly Marshmallow Man yet. Back to this sequence. Yeah, the containment unit features almost every ghost trapped from the series so far. Another fun sign that this is like a season finale. And even though the Ghostbusters aren't saving the world here, theoretically this is all incredibly high stakes, the way you want a season finale to be. 
there's the potential for every threat they faced in 86 to break loose and wreak havoc again all at once, so that's a big deal. I just wish they had focused even a little more on these monsters. Spend five seconds on Killer Watt sparking and the Sandman threatening Egon instead of just zooming by them. I guess Sam Hain gets the most screen time because you see him several times. Egon and the Christmas Ghosts make it out in time. I wonder what that hour time limit was based on. Oh well. Also, man, Slimer really helped out by trying to keep that laser machine running. The series always plays up Slimer screwing things up, but here he really helped out when Janine wasn't paying attention. Huh. Speaking of which, Slimer helped out with the containment unit specifically, so I guess it's kind of a good bookend to how he accidentally let some ghosts free in Ghosts R Us. Oh, and I love it. When Egon pops out back into the basement and he's still ghostly, his torso gets lodged into the floor. Then he writes himself in a very anime way. It's just a neat little bit. Egon and the ghosts make it back to 1837. We don't see what car Egon took. Maybe Janine's? I love it. Ray was trying to be the ghost of Christmas future, and since that one is spooky and silent, he was just playing charades with Scrooge. Egon gets dramatic in front of Scrooge, giving the information that Jacob Marley's ghost gives in the story. You will be visited by three spirits. The first will come at one, the second at two, the third, whenever. I always like that delivery from LaMarche. But hey, I missed this for years and years. Look out the window as Egon is talking. The ghosts are holding up one and two for him to say the times, but future isn't showing three, so Egon isn't trying to be funny here, he just hasn't figured out when Future would show up. And our final joke from the ghosts. Past says, as my brother Christmas Future might say, let's take it from the top. I always found that a weird line as a kid, but of course the gag is that Future never says anything. Christmas Present tells the guys that the holiday is saved, and even straight up tells Peter that the magic reason he ended up here was so that he could learn his own lesson about Christmas. That's great, that's great, but again everyone, Hanukkah. It's older than Christmas. I'm just saying, we could have all learned to celebrate other holidays instead. Maybe get real old-fashioned and celebrate Saturnalia or the Winter Solstice? Present warps the guys back to 1986 and the firehouse. Presumably he warped Ecto-1 and whatever vehicle Egon drove in. Hey, come to think of it, if time really was of the essence, and these ghosts can even warp through time itself, why didn't they just warp from the fire hall to 1837 London? Oh well, me asking silly questions of a children's cartoon again. The guys, Janine and Slimer, toast Ebenezer Scrooge and the three ghosts of Christmas. It's a blue liquid. Hey, are they just drinking water? Well, that's healthy. And the final joke, which you know a children's Christmas cartoon just has to include. They all hear Santa Claus flying overhead with jingle bells. Could it be? Hey, why not? They fight ghosts, don't they? Santa is voiced by Ray and Slimer himself, Frank Welker. Hey, we all know Frank Welker voices millions of characters and animals, but him playing Santa Claus is also a thing. He voiced Santa already in A Chipmunk Christmas, now this episode, and he'll play Santa again on the real Ghostbusters episode Kitty Cornered. He's Santa in A Wish for Wings That Work, Inspector Gadget Saves Christmas, Freakazoid. These are just the ones I spotted. I'm sure he's played Santa dozens of times. And there we go. Xmas marks the spot. I think it's fun, and it's definitely a neat idea to have the Ghostbusters accidentally ruin a famous story, and for them to bust some famous ghosts. It's up there for me when watching Christmas cartoons or specials. It's also just neat to be reminded of its context within the real Ghostbusters, that it's a bit of a capper to 1986, we get to see inside the Ecto-Containment Unit, 
and it'll even close out the cartoon's time on ABC in 1994. Let's go into the future, starting with November of 1997. I briefly touched on Extreme Ghostbusters. Slimer's Sacrifice isn't a Christmas cartoon, but it is a sequel to the containment unit stuff. Slimer gets trapped in the containment unit, and the Extreme Ghostbuster Eduardo goes in to rescue him. Now there's an airlock to the right of the unit, which is a smart addition. Also, inside the unit, it looks like a sewer now, but maybe the unit has different environments. I mean, what do I know? But also, gravity seems to be the same as it is on Earth. Eduardo doesn't float around like he's an astronaut the way Egon does here. Anyway, watching it again real quick, it's pretty good. I'll have to talk about Extreme Ghostbusters someday. Oh, and if you really want to cover absolutely every little thing, Extreme Ghostbusters also mentions the Christmas spirits in the episode Ghost Apocalyptic Future. They're dealing with a time-traveling ghost, and it's an offhand comment. There's some more. In 2009, there was a Christmas Ghostbusters comic book written by Rob Williams and drawn by my pal Diego Jordan. The general thrust of the comic is the same. Peter doesn't appreciate Christmas, and the guys tangle with the spirits of the holiday, ruining things. I think some readers didn't appreciate this comic because it was too similar in concept to the cartoon episode. But it also didn't entirely jibe with it, so the two stories or the two continuities don't really line up. And the Ghosts of Christmas Past, Present, and Future are in Ghostbusters World, the cell phone game. I would have never imagined this. They give Present a sword, which I find a bit odd. They also have alternate holiday costumes for December, which is also weird because they're already holiday-themed spirits, but whatever. Anyway, it's interesting to see these designs come back decades later for a mobile game. And I think that really is it for this episode. Thanks for spending part of your holidays with me, maybe while wrapping presents or doing all the dishes. As I've said lots of times now, I'll be back next year and we'll look at Heavy Metal and finally Ghostbusters the movie, and we'll go from there. And if you enjoyed me covering the real Ghostbusters, let me know if there's an episode you think I should really cover someday. I'll talk to you later, but for now we'd better split up. We can spread more joy that way. Ho, ho, ho!